Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. Perhaps it's a normal night at home for you. So you're just casually doing different things. Maybe you've got the TV on the background. Maybe you're watching a show. Maybe you've got radio on. Maybe you're on the internet once or twice. Maybe drinking something. Maybe having a little snack. It's just kind of a nice night relaxing. Not bad. But maybe there's a little different scenario. And maybe you're hiding in a corner and you have a crowbar or a bat because you think you heard something and you think somebody is going to attack you. And so for the whole night long, you're standing in the corner waiting and ready. You say, well, that's, <laughs> that doesn't make too much sense. That's kind of stupid. But what if you've been broken into your home before and you've been robbed and beaten? Maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe not so far-fetched. Or maybe instead of just being casual in your home, you are examining every uh, fire alarm. Um, you're looking at all of your appliances. You're making sure there's not going to be a fire in your house. You say, well, that's kind of crazy. Just sit back and relax. Well, maybe your house has burned down on you before. Maybe you're a little more agitated, a little more aware of where the possible dangers are. The fact of the matter is that we're all sensitive to different dangers in different ways. Some possible dangers are much bigger to us. We're more heightened in our awareness of them. The New Testament commands us as Jesus followers to have a sense of vigilance at all times. Uses words like standing guard, being prepared, being awake, being alert, being sober-minded, being self-controlled at all times. Why does the Bible speak this way? Because we have a persistent adversary that seeks to destroy our faith. As somebody right now, perhaps in many places, is planning a terroristic attack. So Satan is preparing a destructive attack for the followers of Jesus. When I went to Iraq a few weeks ago, the State, the State Department determined that it should be a level four threat. And so really, the State Department said, no travel to Iraq. Don't go. That alert level may change at some point. But as long as we are clothed in this body, we are on the highest alert. Satan is everywhere. He's not just knocking at your front door. He is in the corners of your house. He's in the corners of your family. He is lurking everywhere with his attacks. Today, as we look at this passage again, we're looking at the fact that as we're trying to be faithful followers of Jesus, we in some sense are going to live out the life of Jesus over and over again. As we look at Jesus going through testings and temptations, we will do the same. And these are serious threats to our faith. 
we are watching a huge battle, a huge clash going on here between Jesus and Satan. We're trying to learn from Jesus how we should be prepared, how we should be vigilant. So we started looking at this last week. We talked about, first of all, how we need to understand and know what God's role is in all this and what Satan's role is. Again, God is sovereign. Satan is an agent. And how do they work together determines how we prepare ourselves and handle ourselves in trials and temptations. Then second of all, we looked at knowing Jesus as our substitute, our conqueror, and our leader. This passage here and what's going on with Jesus is ultimately all about the cross. If Jesus does not pass this test, the cross is empty. There is no benefit. There is no righteousness. But Jesus here is our righteous one. Where humanity has failed before, where Israel has failed before, Jesus passed the test, and therefore what he does can be for us as our substitute. And so he conquers Satan here, and he will conquer him at the cross, and then he becomes our leader as we go through temptations. Then we talked about the importance of knowing the Scriptures. If Jesus conquered these temptations by Scripture, that's how we will do it. We will do it the exact same way. Again, it's amazing. Jesus has not even begun his ministry, and he is already attacked significantly. No rest for Jesus. Battle is on. And the temptations that Jesus here is facing is nothing new from Satan. Satan has no new tactics since the Garden of Eden. These are basically the same temptations that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden, which are the same temptations that Israel faced in the wilderness, which are the same temptations that Jesus is facing, which are the same temptations that you and I will face. 1 John 2.16, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Those are things that we are facing. And these are the same things we're seeing here that go back to the Garden of Eden. Satan has nothing new to throw our way. To throw our way. Nothing new. And yet too many times we are being duped, aren't we? We're being duped. Same things over and over again. We've got to get prepared. And this is very important to understand about this passage because when we look at this, it looks like Satan is attacking Jesus and his identity as the Son of God, right? Two times, Satan says, if you are the Son of God. So it's as though we could interpret this as, Jesus, do you really know who you are? Are you really the Son of God? And that would be a mistake to think that way in some sense. This is not really an attack on Jesus' identity, so much as it is an attack on the Father. This is an attack on God. Notice the three different ways that Satan is described here. The first temptation, he's described as the tempter. And the next two, he is described as the devil. The devil means the slanderer one. This is what ultimately the devil is trying to do here. He is trying to slander the Father. He is trying to portray Jesus portray the Father in a very negative light, which again reminds us of what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. Same thing. It's all about the character of God. And so when you and I are going through testings and temptations, the main thing is, is my God good? 
Is he there for me? Is he watching over me? Is he really there in the midst of my trials and temptations? And can I still say and proclaim that he is good? This is what Jesus is being tempted with here. So let's look at the last two things here today that we need to know and understand so we can be prepared as we face these temptations and trials. First of all, and I've already alluded to this, is to know the primary ways of testing and temptation. The primary ways. We've got three of them here, right? Three testings and temptations. So let's look at these. The primary ways that you're going to be tested is, number one, that something other than God is the fundamental need of your life. Something other than God is a fundamental need to what you have to have to live. So you have to answer the question, and in fact, you've been answering the question since you were born, what is life about? Life is fill in the blank. How you are living, that's how you're filling in the blank. Now, I might ask you what life is. You might give me an answer, right? But that may or may not be right. By how you live your life, that's how you're understanding of God and what life is about. Sometimes we say about a person, they are so full of life, right? Maybe you know people like this, right? They're so full of life, meaning they have energy and zeal, and they're kind of fun to be around most of the time, unless they get in trouble <laughs> with that zeal. But they got so much life, they're not dead, they're awake, they're alive. And the question then becomes is, what is that makes us have life and feel energetic and zealous about getting up in the morning? What is really prompting us? What is the source of that? The tempter says to Jesus, you're hungry. You need bread. So do something and get it. Act on your needs and do what is necessary. So tempted here is seeking to replace God as the fundamental need with something else. He wants you and I to become absorbed with having it so much that we'll try and take it by force and by storm if need be. So what do we have to do to fend off this temptation, this temptation that something else really is the essence of life for us? This is how we fend it off. First of all, knowing and trusting God as the substance of life alone. The substance of life alone. Yes, the Son of God is hungry. Yes, in some sense, he needs bread. He needs bread like all human beings need bread. And again, bread is representing the whole of food, right? We need food to live. He can only go so long. Jesus going 40 days, 40 nights, but at some point, our physical bodies will break down. But Jesus knows food is not his greatest need. How do we know that? He is intentionally fasting. He is making himself hungry. He is reminding himself, even as the tempter is there, that he is trusting his Father alone to satisfy his soul. And he doesn't need the bread. Sometimes people use food to satisfy the soul. And food becomes too important to them. That's how they deal with life. 
life becomes hard and you go to the grocery store, you go to the restaurant, you buy food because life hurts. Life is painful. You can escape through food. Sometimes money is used. Sometimes having good looks, being pretty, being admired, being a man who commands respect when you walk in the room, having a respectful job and career and not some little pitiful job with a really low hourly rate. We don't always say it, but the the tempter knows by studying us and following us to some degree what we're saying in our hearts. He can't actually get into our hearts, but by watching our our lives, he knows what we're saying in our hearts. I sure need that girlfriend. I need that boyfriend. I need that job. I need more money. Yeah, I know I need God too, and he has his place. But deep down we're saying, God, you cannot quiet the scream and the agony of my soul. You are not enough. Jesus knows that making bread here will not help or fix anything that he needs help with. Jesus is learning obedience as the human son of God, learning that his father alone is the satisfaction of life through denying himself. Maybe this is why we struggle so much with contentment in America. So much contentment and joy is missing because we've not learned this joy and satisfaction that comes from denial. Not trying to buy legalist, not trying to be legalistic, but sometimes we think the more and the wire that door is open, we let more and more into our lives, the more and more joy we will have. Satan wants to tempt Jesus with something in the place of his father. But Jesus the Son knows and believes that his relationship with the Father is joy and peace, and that bread will be temporary. And because of taking that bread and making that bread, he'll be substituting that bread for his Father. And the Son knows that is too much to bear. He will not turn away from his Father, who is life. Satan is probably bending your ear quite often. Not in an open and blatant sense of attack like we see in the third temptation here, but just quietly whispering, you need that. This needs to change. You need more. You need a little bit more. God is the substance of life alone. He is our bread. That's why in John 6, Jesus says he is the bread of life. Jesus and the Father are our bread. It's what we need more than anything else. Second of all, to fend off this temptation, we need to trust God and know God as the only solution to our needs. The only solution. Jesus is hungry, so what's the solution? Well, turn stones into bread. Can Jesus do that? He has authority to do it. 
excuse me, he has the power to do it, but he does not have the authority. The Father has not given him the rightful authority to change those stones into bread. To do that would be to disobey his Father, and so he cannot and should not do that. In his hunger, Jesus must trust the word and promises of his Father. Verse 4, man, Jesus shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. There Israel is in the wilderness, and Israel is hungry. They don't have enough to eat. Why isn't God giving them? Don't they know? Doesn't God know that they need bread? Of course God knows that. But it says purposefully that God withheld bread from them. Purposefully to see what was in their hearts. This word's dangerous, isn't it? When Satan is whispering more, 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 and the Father's plan is less, 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 what are you going to do with your heart? There's a fork there. The Father doesn't want you to have what you're pleading for from him. He doesn't want you to have it. He's saying no. Yet Satan is going, yes, yes, yes can see why we stumble and fall. Saying no to yourself is not very appealing. When everybody and everything inside of you says, I want more, get more, have more satisfaction. Making stones into bread would make Jesus a magician, and that's not what Jesus is. He didn't come to be a magician on earth to kind of do some miracles and impress people, use power of his own. Jesus has no power of his own. His power comes from the Father as he trusts the Father. Jesus, as a son, lives by every word that comes out of his Father's mouth, meaning he listens, he obeys, and he trusts. This is the primary human temptation that sits before us every single day, and we develop a pattern in our lives in how we handle this temptation. Here's the pattern. There's a need. There's a problem in our lives. How do you address it and how do you fix it? You have patterns that have become established in your life that you deal with it. And the temptation is to be your own savior. To trust in your own power and wisdom. And that is a sin. I would go so far as the base of this passage say, that's not just like, well, something bad you shouldn't do and it's sin. To trust yourself, because Satan is tempting Jesus that way, tells us to trust yourself is demonic. This shouldn't be a surprise, right? Because Satan was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, wanting them to be their own gods, to call the shot. Not trust in God, be their own savior. And the temptation to be your own savior and to fix your life and to fix your problems is of the devil. This is probably, again, the whole essence of the book of Isaiah that we've been going through months ago. Self-sufficiency and arrogance. Again, what Israel is doing in, in Isaiah is they're acknowledging God. They're going to church 
but they're saying to God, ultimately, I will do the heavy lifting. I need you on the walls of my life, but as far as the essence of life, I will do the heavy lifting. I will fix my life as I need to because you, God, in my heart, I'm saying, may not do it the way I want you to do it. Problem solvers are good to have around. I like problem solvers. You know some of these people, right? They're really good at fixing problems. I love problem solvers when it comes to, like, house repairs. Because I got a problem in my house, something's wrong. I look at it and go, I have no idea. I am clueless. Then somebody else comes in and says, oh, it's just this, just do this, fix this, get this part, and you got it good to go. I'm like, how'd you do that? What did you see? What knowledge, what abilities do you have to, to fix those problems like that? To be our own problem solvers, to solve our problems without trusting, without waiting, without denying, means that you're taking life by the horns. And you're probably going to be gored. To not live by and trust God's word is to trust in your own. And this is where the rubber really meets the road. Because I can hear sometimes myself saying, and perhaps some of you got little voices going on right now. And this is that little voice that loves to get loud. But you don't know what I'm going through. If you knew what I was going through, you would cut me a break. And you would say, okay, it's okay to shave off a few corners of God's truth because I'm just trying to get by. Do you know all the odds that are stacked against me? Let's think about Jesus here for a second. He's in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights not eating. That's amazing, isn't it? Again, Jesus is not getting a free pass because he's the eternal Son of God. He actually is fasting humanly. I don't know if you fasted before. I've done a little bit. <laughs> After 24 hours, <laughs> Lord, please, <laughs> drop some manna from heaven. I need it. 40 days and 40 nights? And what happens when you start really getting hungry? Oh, man. Your attitude goes south pretty fast. Your mind is like, oh, it goes crazy. And then he's alone. How many of you actually have been alone, alone for just a couple days? Now go 40 days and nights without eating anything. And now be in the wilderness where it gets really cold at night. And you hear these animals. How close is that animal coming? This is not like a little thing that Jesus is doing. He's kind of snapping his finger and saying, I can take down the devil. This is a battle royale. If anybody could claim, wow, look at my circumstances, I should get a pass. I'm the son of God. And Jesus doesn't get a pass. Those who fall prey to this temptation find life by doing by fixing because they're hunters. They are going to hunt down and fix and find the solution to their problem, and they are aggressive and many times seemingly successful. And to those people, Satan just keeps on feeding them lies. You're 
you're doing good. You're doing good. Keep up the good work. And everybody outside is going, wow, good job. You're really doing it. Meanwhile, they should be in a state of denial and lack, according to the Father's will. But by their own means and by their own force, they're creating abundance. But it will come back. And it will be taken from them. Psalm 63, David. Remember Jesus, the son of David? David is thirsty in the wilderness of Judah. Sounds a lot like Jesus. My soul thirsts for you, O God. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Bread is life, right? Because your steadfast love is better than having bread. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The fat and rich food is not the steak dinner that David is having out there. He's not having steak dinner. The fat and rich food is being satisfied with God. How much more Jesus here is showing this for us. We've got to fend off this temptation that there's something else that we need right now to be happy in God. Second temptation, God exists to serve and help us as we see fit. That's the second temptation that Satan will feed us. That God exists to serve us and help us as we see fit. So Satan's just trying to reverse the relationship here between the son and the father. Where the son calls the shots. And the father has to listen to the son. That's not how the relationship works. Instead of seeing ourselves as those who joyfully submit to God and learn to love his ways, oh, this is devious. We seek to have God conform to our ways and find ways to manipulate him. So the devil takes Jesus here on top of the temple, in the corner of the temple, says, throw yourself down. And since you are the son of God, your father will surely come to your aid. In fact, the devil says, I even got scripture that will substantiate that, Psalm 91. Your father who loves you will certainly swoop down through angels and others' ways and will save you because certainly your father does not want you to be hurt. What a temptation when you are frustrated with life and you cannot seem, as hard as you try, to make life go the way you want it to go. Instead of submitting and trusting and recognizing that God is testing you, where's my heart? You turn the tables around, you turn the rolls around, and now you test God. And you put God on trial. That's exactly what the devil here is trying to do. Either in words or in actions, you set it up. You set up some circumstances where, in some sense, you are trying to force God's hand to do things that you want him to do. How we fend this off? Well, we must recognize that we are, by doing that, actually challenging God. Actually challenging God. Verse 7, Jesus says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not challenge him. Like, how do we do that? 
Well, in some sense, by our actions, we say, God, your promises are weak. Your promises fail. They're useless. They have no value to me. Where in reality, 2 Peter 1.4, God's promises are precious and they're very great. They're very valuable. And we're trying to do these promises. We say, we've got eternal value in these promises, but they have to be worked out in time. God's promises, remember, are eternal in their substance. God's promises are not vending machine promises. Okay, I trust that if I put this quarter in, that I'll get something out as soon as I pull the lever. Put the money in, pull the lever, it comes out right away. Yeah, this vending machine is great. I put my faith in God, pull the lever, nothing's coming. These are eternal promises, an eternal perspective as God works out his plan in our lives. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. But we also have to guard against challenging God as far as his character. And this is, again, where rubber meets the road. God, you're not giving me what I think I should have. Therefore, I need you to do something to prove your character to me. Everywhere in this book, it says that you're good. Why don't you prove it? Because I don't see it. And we seek God to prove his power. God, show me your power. Do this one thing. If you do this one thing, then I will do this. Then I and my family will do this. Or I'll be committed to do this. If you just show up and do it this one time, just please do this. When I say these things, I'm saying these things because I know what it's like to be tempted with these things. I don't say these things in a condemning way. When I was putting the sermon together and I was thinking about this, I was thinking back to 24 years ago, almost today, a couple months off, where my dad was lying in a hospital room with acute leukemia. Just got diagnosed. It does not look good. And so everybody left the hospital in Minneapolis, and I stayed with my dad all night. And that night mostly was just crying and pleading with God. Anything I could say, anything I could come up with to get God to notice what I'm doing and to bring a miracle. I know what it's like to be desperate and wanting in some sense to try and get God to give you what you desperately want. What is the source of all this really is the fact that somewhere inside of us we have the sense in our sinfulness that God is somehow indebted to us that God actually owes us something that we deem reasonable. We have that reasonable amount in our minds. It is reasonable, God, that you would step in and protect me. I'm going to strike my foot against a stone. I've got cancer. It would be reasonable for you to do this. It would be reasonable for you to give me this money. Other people are getting this money. How come I'm not getting this money? This is reasonable. It's reasonable as a child of God, loved by God, that you would do this for me. Here's Jesus, Son of God. It makes sense that the Father would protect His Son. But 
Jesus is already confident in God's love, the Father's love for him. He doesn't need the Father to prove his love for him. He doesn't demand this from the Father. That would be unthinkable. It would be unthinkable to try and challenge the Father's love. The Son listens and obeys the Father, and that's how the relationship works. But Satan wants the Son to deny the relationship of love between him and the Father. God is not indebted to us, but we are to him. These temptations, again, not solely focused on whether or not Jesus will believe that he is the Son of God. Again, Jesus knows he is the Son of God. But the temptation here is to exploit the relationship. I am the Son, Father, therefore you owe me certain things. I was driving somewhere last week thinking about this, and this thought just came into my mind. As soon as I read that, I thought one thing. The prosperity gospel. If you've heard these preachers and teachers on TV, they have one drumbeat. You're a prince. You're God's queen. You don't think your father wants to give you all this stuff? Your problem is that you just don't have enough faith. If you had enough faith, God would unlock the treasures of heaven because you're a child of the king. So start acting like it. Start asking and speaking into existence what you want because you're a child of God. In light of what we're seeing here, the prosperity gospel is of the devil. That's how Satan argues. Because you are this, therefore, this is now owed to you. And Jesus does not go there, but he recognizes this is a strategy and temptation of the devil to exploit instead of appreciating the great love that God has put on you in your life and to demand something for which you have no basis. you got no basis to argue with God and demand things from him. Look at that bum on the cross. He went around telling everybody else that he could save people. He can't even save himself. Matthew 27, 43. No, Jesus cannot save himself. That would be disobedience. And Jesus will not save himself no matter what. Because he loves his father. And it doesn't matter what Satan can give or offer or tempt. Jesus will never turn his back on the father. Third and lastly, temptation that we face as human beings is the way to glory is an easy path of ease and comfort. This is the third temptation that we all face. We all reckon with it, don't we? Trying to follow Jesus, right? Therefore, we're trying to follow Jesus. Therefore, the path should be clear, easy, well-lighted, smooth. To know and to worship God alone in trust and obedience will involve some very hard decisions that will be costly. The glory of God has a price for us. 
I think all of us, hopefully as followers of Jesus, want to see, in some sense, in this world, following Jesus, the glory of God. We hunger for it. But please know there is a great price. It's not going to be easy. God is not going to flippantly just start throwing out his glory to people just because they come to church or just because they call themselves a Christian. There is obedience and suffering that is involved in getting this glory. How we fend off this temptation? Well, we remember the glory of God has one road, one road of obedience and suffering. So the devil takes Jesus on a high mountain, shows the kingdoms and the glory, offers them to Jesus if he'll fall down and worship him. What pride and arrogance by the devil. He is called a God this age, and he does have some power, but he is really up on his pride right now about what he can and cannot do. Ultimately, that's not in his hands, but he's offering this to Jesus. Jesus knows the promises and the word of God, and Jesus is living by it. And he knows Psalm chapter 2. Jesus knows the word of God. He knows Psalm chapter 2. And that is as God's son, what has promised him as the king of Israel is that he will rule over all the nations, that the nations are his inheritance and his heritage, and they've been promised by the Father. Jesus indeed is to be Lord of the earth and all the nations, but the way he receives this promise is through obedience to the Father through, therefore, suffering and hardship. Glory is on the other side of suffering. So if we speed through the book of Matthew real fast, Jesus obeys the Father all the way to the cross. He is killed. He's prayed in the ground. He rises from the dead, and he is exalted, right? And Matthew 28, verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and earth is given me. The Father gave everything that the devil was promising. But Jesus got it through obedience and suffering. Oh, Mr. Peter. <laughs> Mr. Peter. You shake your head sometimes, Mr. Peter, don't we? Matthew 16. Jesus has been talking about his need to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and be killed, handed over. And Peter says what? Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're hindering me. Peter and Satan are co-laborers, co-tempters with Jesus. As I was going through the sermon this morning, reading that, that just frightened the daylights out of me. That I, in my sinfulness can work alongside Satan and provide temptations to others. We ought not to think too highly of ourselves. Jesus is trying to walk the road the Father has for him, and Satan is trying to sidetrack him. But this is the way of glory. And Jesus says, not just for me, because in the next verse, verse 24, Jesus says, come, Follow me. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. As I am going and doing this, so you also must do the same thing. And so this is why so many people quit following Jesus. Again, as followers of Jesus, we're not looking for hardship. I don't think anybody here wants a lot of hardship in their lives. If you do, 
after church, come to my office, we need to talk a little bit. This is not good. We don't crave hardship. We don't crave suffering. Let me not be misunderstood. But what, we, what do we do crave? We crave Jesus. And to crave Jesus, and you look at his life, you are going to get suffering. If you find Jesus, you find suffering. I don't know if you've ever been told that before. A lot of people like to say, if you find Jesus, you got all these great things, but you have all these great things. <laughs> but a lot of times it's more worldly. Once you find Jesus, you find hardship. We're always looking for shortcuts, aren't we? And shortcuts sometimes make sense, don't they? You're trying to get from point A to point B, and there's a shortcut, right? If you can get to your point B without going with so much effort and time, why not take the shortcut? The problem is that following Jesus you don't get to glory if you take the shortcut. You don't get to your objective. You don't get the glory you want. In fact, according to Jesus, you get destruction. That's why there's no shortcuts. There's only one road. Temptation always creates a fork in the road. The, way, the second way we fend off this temptation is to understand the glory of Christ is to be magnified through our valuing of Christ in obedience. The glorification, the glory of Christ is magnified as we are obedient to Christ in our suffering because we've estimated him to be of great worth and great value. By obeying Christ and accepting hardship of what comes with Christ, we are assigning worth and value to Christ. We are revealing to the world the value of Christ. The world on its own cannot understand the value of Christ. And so to the world, we show the value of Christ through our obedience and the suffering that comes along with it. There, the value, the worth of Christ is set before others. We're always gauging the cost of things, though, aren't we? If I send my kids to private school, what will be the cost? Okay, eight, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. What else does that mean? Well, you've got to figure out all the cost, right? If I buy this car and I get these car payments, what's the cost going to be? All right? There's all kinds of costs that are associated with it. Again, we do this with all kinds of things. And you and I all have a worth, a value that we have assigned to Christ. There is a measurement that we keep that we believe that Christ is worth this much. And what the Father is doing in testing us He's trying to say, I think you've misvalued my son. My son is worth far more than that. So therefore, the father says, I'm going to test you and stretch you so that now you recognize the value and worth of Christ. And in our suffering and our hardships, that's where we show the glory of Christ. You wonder why you're being stretched so much? The Father's being so kind to you. He's letting you know the value and the glory of Christ and letting that be shown to your family and friends and people at church. We know Israel grumbled in the wilderness. And that's how they put the Lord their God to the test and didn't worship him because they grumbled. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Indeed, I've counted all things as loss. Compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, I'm going to suffer the loss of all things and count them but dung that I may gain Christ. The temptation is to make following Christ easy. Last two minutes here this morning, just want to be really honest with you. We got different levels of honesty, don't we? <laughs> I want to go a little deeper with you. And I want us, in some sense, to think together about this that I wrestle with. Because I think we should be wrestling with this, not just as Christians, but also as a church. These are things that we need to think through. Because what we're set before us here is the fact that following Christ is actually going to be very difficult. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be temptations. There's going to be suffering. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be really, really hard. Just think with me for a minute, though, about how we typically conceive of the Christian life and how that gets translated into church life. Many of you have been in church all your lives, maybe like me. But I've been in church life all my life. And I've heard all kinds of things. But this is kind of the one dominant voice I've heard a lot through the years. Would you like to be a member of our church? We don't ask very much. Just, just, just show up once in a while. We'd be grateful if you did that. But we're not asking too much of you. Don't think we are. It's really not hard to be a member. We need children's teachers. We're starting a children's ministry. Can you teach them? We're going to make it really easy for you. We're going to give you the curriculum, and it'll just take a few minutes to look over real quick before you come, and you can teach these kids. Really, it's not going to be that hard. Please come. Please be a teacher. we got a position open here at church. It really won't take much of your time. It really is going to be pretty easy for you to do the job. I think about that, and I go, hmm. Is Christ over there saying, come follow me and die to yourself? And we're over here saying, don't die to yourself. We're going to make it easy for you to stay alive as much as possible without any serious commitment. And you can be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is saying over here, no, you can't. You can't know me. You can't follow me. We're over here saying, you can. Maybe it's because we think we can get more people involved if we just keep lowering and keep lowering. A lot of churches, they don't even have church membership. They're afraid to call anybody to commitment. Jesus was not afraid to say, this is the cost. I went through it. You go through it too, if you love me. Brother Fred here just gave me a book a few days ago. I haven't finished it yet. Insanity of God. Wow, what a book. Just briefly share one little part and we'll close. Husband and wife. The wife kind of grew up wanting to be a missionary. I mean, she had the resume to back it up. Just She had done all the things to prepare herself for a life of being a missionary. I mean, you talk about having all your eggs just all together, just perfectly. It's like, yeah. He, not so much that way. So they went before a mission board, and uh, they're asking this couple, so... You know, tell us about your calling to this mission field and what you want to do. And so the wife goes first, and she is so eloquent, just states her reasons, reflects on her calling for God, and it's just beautiful. 
Husband's impressed. Going, wow, that was great. <laughs> now it's his turn. And they're saying, so what's your calling to this mission? And he goes, well, it says here, Matthew 28, it says to go and make disciples of all nations. Like, no, no, no. You must have understood this. We're asking for your calling. Well, Jesus said, here, you got your Bible? Yeah. Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples. And he goes, no, no, see, my friend, you don't understand. Didn't you just hear your wife? She had a beautiful thing, right? So this, they begin to explain what this calling is all about. You've got to have this, this calling. And if you don't have this vision of God, this big event in your life that substantiates your calling, then maybe you shouldn't go. And he's like, it says here to go. It says to go and make disciples. And that's what I'm going to do. I think we better pray. Lord, and we mean Lord. Lord, God Almighty, we see here in this passage that you are very serious about your word and that you actually expect your people to obey you. And it's not a harsh thing like some brute king going to lash us or something, but you want us to know the joy of serving you and being obedient, and even in the joy of suffering. Lord, we need help just to go and to be obedient and not try and think up some great reason why to do it or not do it, just, just to go. Lord, you are looking. You are looking for people that you can bless and show your glory who have hearts that just simply want to obey. No great big story necessarily. Not necessarily a lot of talk, but just to obey. Your eyes roam to and fro throughout the earth to find those whose hearts are bent toward you. My prayer, Lord, for myself is that you wouldn't pass over me, that you would let me be used. And I pray for everybody here. They also have the very same attitude. Say, Lord, as your eyes go around the earth, please don't miss me. Don't pass over me and say, his heart is not right. I'll pick somebody else. Please maneuver and shape our hearts so they are in the right place as you search out. In Christ's name, amen.